Well, there was a Christian mother who, several weeks into the academic year, and that's kind of where we're at, we're about a month into the college year, had a chance to go for a parents' weekend to visit her son at college, her freshman son, boy off at college, first year, first time away from mom and dad, and upon entering his college dorm room, her eyes swept across the walls, which were covered with more than a dozen suggestive pictures. Everybody clear on what's on the walls? Okay. The poor mother's heart was grieved, but she said nothing. Several days later, after mama had gone home, the mailman delivered a package to the young man. It was a gift from his mother. He tore into the package, of course, one of his first to get from home, and as he opened the package, he found inside a beautifully framed picture of the head of Jesus Christ. Proudly, the boy hung the picture on the wall above his desk, right in the middle of all that sin. That night before he went to bed, he removed the pinup picture which hung closest to the face of Christ. The next day, another picture was consigned to the wastebasket. Day after day, the pictures began to disappear from the walls until the only one that was remaining was the picture of Jesus, our Savior. You see, Jesus in lust or any other sin, really, of any other sort, the two can't long occupy the same walls in the same room or in the same heart. There's something about Jesus, not just a a pretty picture. By the way, that picture probably was nowhere close to what Jesus really looked like, like, right? It's probably one of those Sunday school pictures. He was probably white and not dark skinned like he actually was as a Jew. But, you know, we're not talking about the picture here. There's something about Jesus. There's something about God's grace and mercy given to us in Jesus that moves us to desire as well as empowering us to progressively turn away from our sin and in His power be more like Him. I want to talk to you this morning about gospel-empowered holiness in Jesus' gospel gathering. Gospel-empowered holiness in Jesus' gospel gathering. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And let me just tell you what we're going to do. And so, because as, as soon as I say this, you need to silently pray. <clears throat> we're fixing to cover the whole book of Titus in one message. Everybody, please stay seated. I promise it's not going to be that bad. You know, we've been all over, uh, we've been all over Ephesus, hadn't we? We've, we've gotten to know the church at Ephesus under the, 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 the ministry of the pastor, young pastor Timothy. We've heard so much about Paul's relationship with Timothy. We've learned a lot about uh, the dynamics of, 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 of the life of the body there. We talked about gospel-shaped living in, in Jesus' gospel gathering from 1 Timothy. And then most recently, up until last Sunday, we were focusing on 2 Timothy, where we talked about gospel-emboldened endurance for Jesus' gospel gathering. So a general shape of life by the gospel, 1 Timothy specifically endurance in the hard times and in persecution, 2 Timothy. And now we come to just consider briefly, I hated to leave Titus out, right? I mean, what's Titus ever done to me that I'd skip him? 
gospel-empowered holiness in Jesus' gospel gathering. We read the text earlier, so we'll just kind of take it as we come to it uh, in, our, in our time together this morning. But here's the take-home truth. We must relate to our world in humble holiness because of God's grace poured out on, our, on us. What am I really wanting you to catch about gospel-empowered holiness in Jesus' gospel gathering? What is it about holiness in the church fueled by the gospel that I really want you to take away today? It's this, we must relate to our world in humble holiness because of God's grace poured out on us. I want you to see, first of all, from our text, the call to humble holiness in society, the call to live in humble holiness even in our world. Verses 1 and 2, Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The, the focus is clearly not within the body, but without in the world. And Paul says, make sure you remind them to, 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 to deal properly with earthly authorities. But the kind of the, the, the summary statement there at the end of verse 1 is this, be ready for every good work. Are we ready for every good work, not in here but out there, as we walk out into the world around us on a Monday morning? Are we ready for every good work? There is a call here to humble holiness lived out in society. Paul tells us what every good work is all about. First of all, it's how, as we've already seen, how we relate to earthly authorities. We won't spend a lot of time there. But we're to be good citizens. We're to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We're to be obedient to the government. We're to be law-abiding citizens here in as much as the government doesn't call on us to do something that God forbids or commands. And, you know, so that God and, and, and our obedience to the civil laws in conflict. But I want you to notice verse 2 especially this morning. What else does it mean to be ready for every good work? What kind of works are he, is he talking about? Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy, look at it, toward all people. Again, the focus is not in the body. This is not talking about life in the church, though it certainly includes that. It's focusing on our relationships in the workplace, our relationships at school, our relationships in the neighborhood, our relationships with extended family. It's talking about our relationship to a godless society. Now, that is particularly pointed for us this morning, is it not? In 2018, where our world is full of shouting matches and a growing polarization of perspectives without any real listening or reasonableness to be found anywhere in the middle. Amen? Speak evil, evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show, listen to this. What a, what a great phrase in translation. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
David Mathis says, as Christians, only by the grace of God, we have no excuse to let words fly. In speech, in tweets, in Facebook posts, y'all all right? That just got mighty personal, did it not? That are ungracious. We have no excuse to let words fly that are ungracious. We are representatives of Jesus Christ. And we are commanded clearly in this verse to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesies. Everybody know what courtesy is? Some of you kids might know what courtesy is. It is a common decency. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a kindness. It's a, it's a being human one to another. Treating each other as, as we actually are image bearers of the living God. Realizing that no matter how different that other person may be, no matter how, how, dis, how far apart we may be on views and how, how we might disagree, that other person bears the image of God and I will treat him or her with courtesy. In Colossians 4, it's not the only time Paul said something like this. In case you think this is some obscure verse, and that's why you've missed it. That's why we tweet what we tweet, Facebook what we Facebook. There's another passage, Colossians 4. You're probably more familiar with this, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Same context as we're talking about here in Titus. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. This is your relationship to lost people. Walk in wisdom in relating to them. Making the best use of the time. Some of your translations there will say redeeming the time. In other words, every time you get to relate to someone who's outside the church, who's lost, make sure you make the very most of that time. You redeem it. You, you, you ask God to come to bear on that moment and your relationship and your interaction with that person who doesn't know Jesus. Ask God to make it redeeming that they might know even Jesus Christ. But then listen to what he says. He, he gets specific about his wisdom what, what, what will wisdom toward outsiders look like? What does it look like to make the best use of your time with those outsiders? Let your speech always be gracious. What else can I do with that but read it to you? That's clear, isn't it? Let your speech always be gracious. It doesn't say except when. Except on this occasion, if, when he does or she says this, let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt, that's the truth. It's, it should have truth in it. It's not ungracious to speak the truth. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does it look like to, to redeem the most of, of every moment you have with an unbeliever? It means to let your speech, first of all, clearly always be gracious. Season it with truth, yes. Ask God for the wisdom to know how to speak into that moment in the life of that person you talk to, but always let your speech be gracious. D.A. Carson says this of our day and our time. One of the things that Christians have to learn in this frame of reference is even if the whole society becomes uncivil in all discourse, we must not descend to that level. We must not project ourselves as screaming, angry people, but as broken people, living under the cross, submitting to the lordship of Christ, 
wanting to think fairly and accurately and faithfully and truly and hopefully and edifyingly in a Christ-honoring, church-building-up sort of way. You see, this is the call to humble holiness in society. What drives this sort of living in our angry world? If you're, if you're going to live this way as a believer... Uh, let, let me just let's just kind of let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Make sure we're all uh, keeping up. You see the call to humble holiness in society. You see, you do understand that that's your job as a believer. If you do, raise your hand or nod your head. Yes, it's still this way in America, up and down. Yep. Okay. So if you're going to do that, what is it going to be that drives you, that fuels you to do it when you go out and encounter an angry world that makes you angry? Uh, that's ugly to you makes you want to be ugly back to them. How, how, how are you going to overpower that with humble holiness and perfect courtesy? That brings us to our second point in verses 3 through 7. We see the call to humble holiness in society, but notice in verses 3 through 7, the humbling remembrance of our sovereign grace salvation. Paul says, for, I want you to live in humble holiness and society, for, because we ourselves. Suddenly, we, we, we take our eyes off of these people out here that are opposed to God and make us mad, right? And we go back to remember us. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You were like them. Amen? And is it not true? But for the grace of God, which is exactly what he's fixing to say, we would be no different. And all of a sudden, there's this humbling remembrance that's beginning to happen in our hearts of our sovereign grace salvation. But don't, uh, we we can't stop. Verse 4. But, that's where we were. Slaves of sin. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that is in the gospel message, when we heard the truth that God who is our judge, who was our judge justly, at the same time has become our Savior in the sending of His own Son. He's full of goodness and loving kindness toward us. He saved us, verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Verse 5 again. He saved us. Don't ever forget who saved who. Don't ever forget that you were rescued, the word saved means, by God himself. Don't let it go go very long at all before you remind yourself of the fact that God came running after you when you were in sin. When you were running 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction, God came to you, he overwhelmed you, he overcame you with his love and his mercy. And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness we didn't have any, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about the new birth. You know, think about your own birth for a minute. Can you do that? 
<laughs> no, because you can't remember your own birth, right? You didn't have anything to do with your own birth. Your birth happened to you, right? You were born through the travail of your mother and the biology God created in the, in the, in the, in the, in the female anatomy and, 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 and the whole thing of labor and term and coming to term and, 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 and you were born. It happened to you. Have you ever talked to anybody who said, you know, here's the deal, I born myself. Oh, really? But you know, some Christians you talk to, you act like, they act like they born themselves in the new birth. It's more about what they did to follow Jesus than what Jesus did to save them. That's a problem. If your testimony is more about you than Jesus, you need to, you need to check up, Amen. He saved us, but according, not by works done by, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead came and raised us from the dead. Dry bones lived. In the moment the gospel was preached and we heard and faith was created in our hearts by the Spirit and we were unable to believe the gospel and follow Jesus. Whom of the Spirit, he says, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's not an insignificant phrase. It's a beautiful phrase, but, but don't miss the truth of it. He didn't just forgive us and resurrect us. He poured out into our lives generously, richly, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' Spirit comes to live in your heart when you trust in Him. We tell our children, and I'm telling you as adults, it's the same. And that matters beyond the moment of conversion. That matters throughout your life. He lives in me. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are not just forgiven, indwelt, empowered, changed. We have an everlasting hope. We are heirs of the living God. We've got an, a heavenly inheritance that cannot compare with anything on, in this world. And you see, if we remember our own salvation, where we were before, how God sovereignly and mercifully worked to awaken us to our sin and, 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 and to our need for a Savior, and, and then the beauty of Jesus and the good news that He alone is the Savior of the world, and that through childlike faith in Jesus we could be forgiven for all of our sins and declared righteous forever in the presence of a holy God, if we will remember this, Paul says we can only relate to others in humble holiness. Because when I remember that, I deal with an angry world differently. I realize I'm no different than an angry world. I was once one of them, and yet God in mercy changed me, saved me. And now I am his emissary, his ambassador, his representative. I'm his mouthpiece to those who need to see the beauty of his grace and the only thing that really ever has motivated me to be better was grace. Amen? What do what, what rules do for you? Can I just be honest with you? I don't like them. I, I mean, they just stir it up inside of me. If I see one, I want to break it. Amen? I, mean, it's, I know, you really shouldn't amen that. Thank you for not. But thank you for being more spiritual than your pastor today. That's good. But right, that's the way the sinful human heart works, is it not? 
You know what motivates the human heart? Grace. That's what this message is all about if you hadn't caught on yet. Tim Keller said, you can love generously if you have been generously loved. So here's the deal. If you observe in my life, I'll take the pressure off of you for a minute. I'll put it on me. If you observe in my life an unloving spirit towards someone, you see me being hard with somebody. You see me being particularly um, rigid and, and, and my expectations for this person are just ridiculous. And I'm just, I'm just being hard on this person. You know what you need to come say to me, David? And David would, David would by the way. You need to come say to me, are you treating him the same way you've been treated by the Lord? You see, here's the deal. If I am being ungenerous in my love for someone... It reflects that at least in that particular moment, I am being unaware of the love and the generosity and grace and mercy God's shown me. At least in that moment. I may know it. And I may just be slipping in the moment into sin and and, and, and an unloving spirit. But, But, right? You see, if we've been generously loved, then we can generously love others no matter what. We can forgive, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. By the way, this whole letter is about... Letting grace change your life. Letting grace move you to humble holiness in the world. Second, or Titus 2, verse 10, at the end of that verse, it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's just been going through different groups in the church and, 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 and talking about how practically they should live in obedience. And he said, here's the point of it all, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, so that they may beautify the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean to make it any more beautiful than it is, but it means that the idea is just to kind of highlight, accentuate the positive, the beauty, the glory of the gospel by how they live. For, verse 11 of Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. If you're here today, the salvation of God is available to you because the grace of God has appeared in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. He was buried three days, rose again. He lives today. He can be your Savior forever. It can happen today. That's the gospel. But notice what this gospel, this salvation does, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his very own possession who are zealous for good works. God saved you to make you righteous before his Father. God saved you to make you uh, fully accepted in the beloved, forgiven of all sin, for, uh, you, to make you the one for whom there is therefore now no condemnation in, in, in Christ. But in addition to that, he saved you to redeem you from all lawlessness, all sinfulness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Make no mistake, your salvation, God's intention in your salvation was not just your justification. It included, as Paul would say in another place, your sanctification. And it ultimately includes your glorification. You know, here's the deal. We're all excited when we get saved. And and as we move through the Christian life, we're all excited about our justification. Once once saved, always saved, forgiven forever. Amen? That's true, so amen. You can amen this one. And we're all excited about our glorification, the fact that we get to see Jesus one day, that we're going to heaven, that we're going to miss hell, that we get to be with him forever. Amen? 
Sometimes we don't praise him about that middle part, though, do we? We don't thank him that part of his will in, uh, for us and part of the, the reason he called me out as a young boy at homesick one Sunday morning as a Gideon preached the gospel gym on the TV from our home church in Cartersville, Georgia. The reason he did it was not just to justify me and get me to glory, but in the meantime to make me like Jesus so the world could see Christ in me and hear Christ through me. Michael Horton says this, saving faith is not the enemy of good works, but their only possible source. If we're to really do good works in this world for the glory of God, we must be believers. We must be indwelt by the Spirit. In other words, our heart has to be indwelt by the Spirit of God so that the motives from which those good works come are pure in themselves and therefore don't corrupt the works. You got that? There's people that do moral things all the time, right? For selfish and self-righteous and arrogant reasons, right? The only, the only people that can truly love from a heart of, 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 of just grace and love and mercy toward others are those who are indwelt by the spirit of grace and mercy and love given to us in Jesus Christ and given to us personally by the spirit of God. David Mathis again, talking about the book of Titus. This is interesting. No other book in the Bible takes such a concentrated focus on the theme of good works. Not even James, interestingly enough. This book's three chapters long. In three short chapters, Paul explicitly... That doesn't count the references or the, the inferences, but the explicit mentions of the phrase good works happen six times in three short chapters. And the wild part about all of this that you cannot miss this morning is the society to, in which Paul called Titus to live in gospel-empowered holiness and do these good works. Titus was the pastor of a church, and, and, and actually probably churches, across the island in the lower Aegean Sea of Crete. We're told that Crete was proverbial in the ancient world for its moral decadence. When you thought about sin, you thought about Crete. When Crete got mentioned, you thought of sin. The ancient historian Polybus wrote that it was almost impossible to find personal con conduct in the Roman Empire more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero also states, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. If you, if you look back in, in your Bibles to chapter 2, maybe I can, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says of the Cretans, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, probably the, 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 uh, the poet Epimenides, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. <laughs> the poet got it right. The place is a wreck, morally speaking. Whatever you think about that's godless, that's Crete. It was happening. 
And yet, Paul says, even in such a morally corrupt society as even Crete, the gospel is sufficient to fuel humble holiness that will adorn the gospel and be a key signpost in the middle of that moral chaos to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You see, we can, even in this America. Did you think about our nation when we were talking about Crete? You should have. Amen? We can, even in this America, live with gospel-empowered holiness in Jesus' gospel gathering here in the church as we go out into the world by constantly remembering God's sovereign grace salvation so freely lavished on us. We've seen the call to humble holiness in society. We've seen also the, the, the call to remember God's sovereign grace salvation to us. Notice with me lastly this morning, the reiteration of the necessity of humble holiness. He just wraps up this little section by coming back to what he started with. And in verse 8 he says this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. What saying is trustworthy? That would be what he said there in verse 7. Uh, and, 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 and those verses leading up, verses 4 through 7, talking about the goodness of God to save us and change us and make us more like Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, for believing people, for the church, as well as for our influence on the world. So Paul says, Titus, what I'm telling you, I want you to insist on these things. Don't let up. You're in, a, you're in a society, you're surrounded by people who want to compromise, who want to say, here's the deal, you can follow Jesus, but then live however you want to. It's too hard to follow Jesus and, 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 and depend on him and be holy. It, 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 it's, it's, it's like swimming upstream to live a holy life in, in, on the island of Crete. You can't really be godly in 2018 America. Isn't it all about the grace of Christ anyway? Well, yes, it is, but it's not grace that leaves you the same. It's grace that transforms you and makes you more and more like him. So Titus insists on these things so that those who have believed in God... Listen, are we this? Is this us? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And Joe, I'm not ta- we're not talking about church work. We're talking about holiness and obedience to Jesus in our private lives, in our corporate lives, in our family lives. Are you careful to devote yourself, not just to do, but to devote yourself to doing good works? Are you serious about living in humble holiness? We must relate to our world in humble holiness because of God's grace poured out on us. If we received His grace, this is how we must live. As Paul has already made clear, these works flow out of our enjoyment, our constant remembrance of God's gracious salvation to us in Jesus. Let me just ask you something. Can any of you think about the gospel and how Jesus through the gospel, how God through the gospel of Jesus Christ saved you? Can any of you think about your salvation and not enjoy the thought. Anybody? 
I mean, when I think back to what God did in my life, I just, I smile inside. If I don't smile outside, and, and most time I do, but I, I, I just, it, it amazes me to think that before the world began, he knew my name. That, that, before the, that before I was ever born, Jesus hung on the cross for me and born his body on that tree, my sins. So that in 1977, january I believe, he would work in my life personally. Heaven to earth, Jesus to Chad Kelly, and save me. I mean, what a wonderful thing. And as we enjoy that, it will change how we live. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You know, there's a lot of stuff that can come up in a church that really doesn't matter. Amen. You can say amen to that one. That one's all right. Oh, we may not have the Jewish influence of the church there at Crete. There may not be debates about the law of Moses. But there's stuff that can come up. Foolish controversies, right? Dissensions, quarrels. Anything that eclipses a gospel focus, anything that is secondary to the gospel and the Great Commission, Paul says, avoid it. Don't waste time on it. In fact, call it what it is. It's worthless, the text says. Unprofitable and worthless. And you see, if you don't, then here's what you'll have. Verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You want to stir up trouble in the church. You want to get some talk started about somebody you disagree with on something other than the gospel. That means something secondary and ultimately unprofitable and ultimately really worthless. You need to understand, Paul's got some words for you. Now, church, if you don't respond as Paul commands, which is if someone is divisive, you warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you have nothing to do with them. That's stout, by the way. That's an official action of the church, saying, here's the deal. We've warned you. You continue to be divisive. We must, according to the word of God, treat you as if you are not a believer, praying that you return in repentance and stop the divisiveness. Church, if you... Don't respond as Paul commands, then expect the divisiveness to run rampant. And for your church family to be splintered into various factions. And please, don't say you love one another in the middle of such a mess as that. Because you're leaving the divisive man or woman to rot in his or her warped, the text says, in sinful ways where Paul says he or she is self-condemned and you, by not acting, leave them there. Don't say you love one another. You say, Chad, man, that was stout. Are you, is there, we got, we got problems? No, have, have no, don't know of anything. Praise the Lord. I mean, I like preventative medicine best, don't you? I thought you would. <laughs> Believe me, you do. We must relate to our world in humble holiness because of God's grace poured out on us. The job of the church ultimately is not to impact just the church, but to impact the world. 
Church is like a huddle in a football game. But you know, 60,000 plus people, I don't even know what the numbers are in a modern day stadium. Anybody know what the Ben seats? It's a bunch, ain't it? About 80,000 maybe, something like that. 60,000 people don't pay money for a ticket to watch the Falcons huddle. Right? You, 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 don't hear, you don't hear the fans cheering when the Falcons are in the huddle, right? You don't hear them going crazy when the Falcons are in the huddle, planning to play. What if you went to a Falcons game and for two and a half hours you watched 11 men stand in a circle and talk? I mean, that's not what you paid for. 60,000 people pay for a ticket to see what difference the huddle makes. I got some boys nodding their heads because they get this. Moms and dad, you got it, right? What they want to know is having called the play in secret, does it work in public? The challenge for the church is not what we do when we call our Sunday morning huddle, but what we do when we break our huddle and we head to our Monday morning assignment to play the game. That's not a game. Will the gospel work on your job? Will the grace of Christ make a difference in how you speak to that coworker? Will the love of God move you to do something different than everybody else for that friend? You see, we must relate to our world in humble holiness because of God's grace poured out on us. This is gospel-empowered holiness in and through you, Jesus' gospel gathering in the world. Let's pray together.